This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to interview some of the most influential people involved in the fishing world today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both on and off the water. This episode is made possible by one of my favorite family-owned companies. Blue Sky Furled Leaders are designed for anglers who want a long-lasting leader. Blue Sky Leaders are measured by the season, while the life of conventional mono-leaders can often be measured in days or even minutes. Each of Blue Sky's furled tapered leaders are handwoven in the USA from over 90 feet of premium nylon material. From here, they are individually inspected and tested before packaging to ensure the highest quality standards. Check them out at www.blueskyfly.com. Steve Rajeff. If hearing that name doesn't make you automatically think of one of the most influential people in fly fishing's history, then thank goodness you found your way to this podcast. Steve Rajeff is, in my opinion anyway, the best caster in the world. Yes, I said it. Simply put, the man was born for the sport. Steve is one of the few men in the industry who people have heard of, yet know very little about. He is the epitome of a private person, and is somebody I've spent some time fishing with, but not nearly enough time speaking to. After a little coaxing, I met with him at the G. Loomis factory in Washington to see if I could learn a little more about him and to get a better feel on how he came to be. I grew up in San Francisco, you know, the big city of San Francisco, but it has this really unique uh, park, the Golden Gate Park, and in the park is this casting and fly fishing club, the Golden Gate Angling and Casting Club. And as a kid growing up near the park, we'd pedal around on our bicycles, and I came across this place, and I watched these fly casters on the pond, and I said, wow, that's cool. And I just knew it was there, and I was probably six or seven or eight years old, something like that. 
But um, our family used to take trout fishing trips on vacation in the Sierra Mountains. And at a certain point in time, I watched a fly fisherman catch a lot of trout with a fly rod. And I said, I got to learn how to do that. And so I went over to the fly fishing ponds there, the Golden Gate Angling Casting Club, with an old beater outfit and started to try to cast. So that's kind of where I got started in my fly fishing skill sets. And just by coincidence, um, my sister was in school with a, a, a girl that was the daughter of Mel Krieger. And Mel Krieger was just beginning to go fly casting and tournament casting oh, okay. at that time frame. So uh, somehow or another, I got connected to Mel. And he said, sure, come out after school. I'm there on the afternoons, evenings. I'll show you what to do. Right. So Mel gave me kind of a couple of pointers on casting, and he, and I liked it, and I was getting pretty good at it. And I know I was like 9 or 10 years old. So he said, you got to go into a tournament. I said, no, I don't want to do a tournament. I just want to go fishing. No, no, no. You have to, you have to try this because if you hit the targets, you get better at it. It makes you a better fisherman. Oh, I said, okay, yeah. okay. So I had that hook about casting. And I did a tournament, and I was last place. You know, I was out of like twenty older people, thirty to <laughs> seventy year olds, and so uh, that's it. I did my tournament. Now I don't have to do it. No, no, you got to do it one more time. <laughs> At so, ten years old. Yeah. Okay. So he said, "No, you got to do one more," which was two weeks later, and somehow I accepted that. So I kept practicing basically every day, and two weeks later, in the event called Dry Fly, just a regular six weight or seven weight, any any size is allowed, but I think mine was a six weight. So it turned out I won the event. I beat out Mel. I beat out what? <clears throat> all these older casters, old people, like thirty year old people. <laughs> <laughs> and anyhow, um, so I won the event, and that got me like, wow, a ten year old can beat up on all these, and that gave me instant recognition with all these uh, expert casters, and they were also keen fishermen. Mm -hmm. So besides getting more into the fishing world of fly fishing, particularly. Um, but also a little bit of saltwater fishing around San Francisco Bay. Uh, but I was invited on various fishing trips, and it was my startup in my casting interests and tournament casting career. Oh, this is so cool. So you have a brother, Tim, and you have a sister as well? Mm -hmm. Just the three of you guys? Right. Okay, got it. Just trying to wrap my head around it. So does your whole family fish? Did your dad fish? Not so much. I mean, he would like it, but he didn't pursue it or anything. He was all about being a good dad and making sure everything was taken care of at home and enough for the kids. So he would support us in any way possible to help us with preparing equipment. And and we would do this month, uh, annual fishing vacation. I called it a fishing vacation. It was like a little wooden cabin in there put on by the university called Camp Mather. It's up in the Sierras, right in Yosemite Park. So we would go there, and then our grandparents would also take the grandkids uh, a week or two a year, and we would catch bass or carp or catfish on those trips. But that's what I really, the favorite thing for me on the vacations was the fishing part. And, you know, just that. And then later on with the fishing and casting club people, joining them for steelhead or trout fishing or shad fishing or other kind of fishing trips around California, that was really cool. But along the way, uh, the Fenwick Company started up the Fenwick Fly Fishing Schools. Mm. This was the first, like, larger scale learn-to-fly-cast-fly-fish school ever started. 
By Fenwick. By Fenwick. I didn't in know 1970, that. 1970 or 71. So the first organizer of it was Jimmy Green, and yeah. Jimmy Green was a, a competition caster, and he was in charge of the raw design at Fenwick, and I knew Jimmy because he did tournament casting with us on these various tournaments, and so even though I was about 12 years old, I was invited to be a teacher at one of those schools, and so Mel was the organizer, Mel Krieger, renowned these days as being you know, one of the most influential teachers of fly casting and an mm-hmm. author of books, and and school organizer for many different things, but he was one of the head organizers of the schools. And so uh, down in California, there's a huge lake called Berryessa, and I think our class was 72 people the first time. And so we would all rotate in teaching positions around these large groups of people. Lots of breaks, lots of here's what we do next, and here's lunch, and here's what we're going to cast this afternoon. And even it was a two-day deal. So I quickly had a, a, a hand at either showing people what to do or trying to figure out what they're doing and teach them how to cast. And that made you a better caster, I'm sure? Makes me a better caster, makes me uh, understand what I should be trying to do to make my own casting better. Mm-hmm. And then we're always relating it to tackle because some people were struggling with mismatch equipment or something that wasn't working well and what's wrong with this and why. And so what do you think? Oh, yeah, okay, I got it. That's why this cast isn't working. So early on, age 12 or so, I was already fiddling with equipment and besides the teaching, but my tournament casting, which includes fly casting for accuracy, like with a trout rod, the dry fly. Mm -hmm. Then we have a bass bug outfit with a popper cork. Then we have fly distance with a light rod, like a 10-weight shooting head. Then we have heavier single hand, like with a 15-weight long shooting head. Nowadays, we're casting well beyond 200 feet. And then the double-handed distance casting rod, which is now allowing 17-foot rod, what would be maybe called a 30-weight. I mean, it's 1,800 grains. And we're launching it with a double-handed overhead style 275 feet, even up to 300 feet. But I was learning all that stuff. So all this combination of teaching and casting and learning equipment and talking with Jim Green was really what got me just, that's my life. That's what I'm doing. Did it consume you at 12? Was that was that all that you wanted to do? Because from my parents' house to this casting club was less than 10 minutes on my bicycle. And there's this little clubhouse that has lockers you can keep your rods totally assembled and ready to use in those lockers. No reason not to go then. And no reason daily. Instead of going to the basketball courts or baseball or football or any other kind of sport, I was at the casting clubs every day. I casted at least 300 days a year. Oh, my God. I mean, what was it about competition casting that was so appealing to you? I was good at it. (laughs) Okay, yeah. Yeah, I mean, second tournament ever and you win. Yeah. And then having coaches that were really experts and renowned casters and tournament people. Because I already knew right away that, you know, okay, we got the American Championships and the World Championships. A club member was also six times the world champion. His name was John Tarantino. And he Mm -hmm. was like, oh, man, John is the most amazing caster. And you see him. And you just see how much better he was than anybody. And it was like, wow, that's cool. I want to be like that. Right. So, you know, just by example and then by success, I just knew that this was something I was capable of and see what else. Because 
Then by age 13, the club, Steve, you need to go to the Nationals. The Cubs, the casting club will sponsor your trip. Right. Pay for your airplane and your hotel and the registration. And it's in St. Louis, Missouri. So at age 13, I flew to St. Louis to be at the Nationals. And I competed in the adult men's division, although there was an intermediate, so I could have been. But I had already been so strong that they said, go ahead and enter the men's. That will be good. And I won, I don't know, four or five of the individual events, including angler's fly distance, dry fly accuracy, my two favorite fly events, and did okay in everything else in the plug casting. Uh, so I was third place in the all-around championship against people who have been doing it for 20 years. That's amazing. Then the next year, I was 14 years old. I was second place in the all-around. And when I was 15, I won the all-around. So what's your body type at this point? Because I hear people say all the time, well, being built like Ray Jeff. What do they mean by that? Do they mean you're? I mean, well, I'm staring across from you right now. You got you you're you got big wrist. You look strong. What were you like at 13, 14, 15? So already by a teenager, I was big for my age, and I was probably 150 pounds by age 15, mm-hmm. and maybe five foot eight or nine. You know, and I was pretty strong. So I was as strong enough to do the events. For strength, and then the skill is more important than strength. Is if you're lousy at technique, I don't care how strong you are, but technique and practicing and looking for the loops or looking for the trajectory or looking for rotational speed on plug distance, those are the technique is first and power is second. Mm-hmm. And then by the age 18, 20 ish, I started to do gym stuff, you know, weightlifting and training just as a general purpose strength. And not dedicated to casting. I was just kind of on the bandwagon with being as fit as I could at that time. And so I did go to the gym a lot. And and by age 20-ish, I was like 200 pounds and just cut. So I was in tremendous physical shape. And that's where the rage of, you know, strength came from. Thank you for explaining. Okay, So it's not like just because I'm big. But at that point in time, I was probably in better physical shape than any other caster, let's say. Right. Okay. That makes sense. So let's talk a little bit about um, growing up because you're the only person I know who at the age of 12, I mean, a lot of people start fishing at 12, but I read a lot of books and you are always mentioned in the books. Even McGuane mentions, you know, you in, in one of his books with, with Mel. And what about the rest of, you know, so, like, did you socialize with regular kids? Did you chase girls? Were you a normal kid or were you serious? Were you, you know, my other activities that I love to do was snow skiing. So in our wintertime, our family would go up to the Lake Tahoe area of California and there's Squaw Valley and Alpine Meadows and Dodge Ridge and over in the Nevada side, Rose Mountain. And then later on, I went other places too. So I really love snow skiing is my wintertime stuff. But the fishing was really my, you know, my main thing. I also was pretty good at basketball shooting, but with white man's disease, can't jump. I, I was never going to make it in basketball. I was pretty good at a baseball and played that a little bit. So I had some other sports and activities. My other strong interest was music. I uh, picked up trumpet playing. Really? Oh, I can see the, you being a strong trumpet player. Uh, you may still know the name called uh, Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. That was kind okay. of a popular group back in the 60s when I was young at that time. And, and I heard that song called The Lonely Bull. And it's this tremendous 
trumpet song that was on the pop radio, and so I said, I want to do that. <laughs> so I started playing trumpet, and it stuck with me through college years. So I played it for over, like, 10, 12 years, and I don't play it anymore, but, I mean, it had a strong effect on my interest in music in general, so I do appreciate, you know, strong instrumental capabilities and understand a fair amount, but uh, I think that was my other strong passion and stuff. Um my so you you were an anomaly, but you were a regular. You were still a regular kid growing up. More or less. Was Tim fishing with you at this point? So Tim Ray Jeff also got started in casting a season or two or three after I did because he liked it too, and he liked going fishing too. And so uh, he did a lot of casting with us. Tremendous. He has what I would think is a stronger uh, mechanical hand-eye coordination, or maybe a, a, a sharper hand-eye coordination than maybe even what I had, but he had more other interests. He was more of a goofball and playing, <laughs> trying different things and goofing off. And yeah. so he had more fun at it. And I was more diligent at practice and really perfecting every little thing that I could. So Tim was there casting and he won his share of tournaments and won a world championship in flight distance in one of the tournaments one time. Uh, he held a record one year at the nationals for the fly distance double hand so Tim was tremendous at casting and still is. So, you know, if he wanted to, if he were able to focus a little more and say, I'm going to practice and practice and practice, he would have won a lot of world championships. He would have. It's cool that you had each other growing up. Where did you go from there? You went to college. What did you take in college? In San Francisco, there was a choice of a, a big university there close by and, and went to San Francisco State uh, with a... A mathematics and science major shifted into the business field and ended up with a degree in marketing so the business field I said yeah if I'm gonna go in the fishing world and being a manufacturing or selling or something I should have some kind of a business background so I did decide to do with marketing but math was my backup and marketing was my major and that's what I had a degree in and from there um, it was like, okay, where do I want to work? And you always knew you'd be in the fishing industry because it's your entire life. Yeah, I thought so. I thought there was a good place for me somehow. And I did a couple of interviews, but the one that I uh, latched onto was this new company started up by a guy named Don Green on Bainbridge Island, Washington, called Winslow Manufacturing. And he, I knew Don Green because he was the vice president of Fenwick, when I used to go up to the Fenwick factory as a kid uh, to visit with Jimmy Green and make tournament rods just for me, uh, we have to come back there because I was able to try graphite and boron rods well before they were even available on the market. But I knew J uh, Don Green was starting up a company, and he was the factory uh, director, actually, and a partner of Fenwick. So Don invited me up says, yeah, we'd like to bring you on. You could be a combination of, of rod testing and uh, selling helper and schools and promotions so combination of PR and the development side mm -hmm. and so I, I decided to take that job and that was my first real job in the fishing industry uh, working for Winslow Manufacturing and they called it the Winslow Rods but we found out that you cannot trademark that because it's the name of a city Oh, okay. So you can't use that as your brand if you want to protect it. So we went to the advertising agency in Seattle, 
and among a bunch of names, there was a name on the list. I said, hey, I like that one. It's kind of Western. It's kind of a smart man and everything. Let's use that name, Sage. You chose the name? This is amazing. Well, that's one of them, anyway. I mean, I said that's the name I would pick. Oh, how and cool. Among, amongst the other people. So we had uh, uh, a name change in the second year from Winslow to Sage, and I was the first salesman for Sage, and I went from Washington State, northern part where we were, all the way to Southern California, San Diego, all the way to Phoenix, Arizona, zigzagging through the Rocky Mountains north to Great Falls, Montana, and back to Seattle, Washington. I visited 110 fishing shops in six weeks, opening up the first dealer base for for. For Sage Company. How old were you at that point then? I was 22. Okay, all right. So you're still a young lad. I was just a young kid, not knowing any better. So I was knew all the rods. I had every single model. I would show and tell and say, "Here's the coolest rods from the people that are specializing in this." And at that time, there wasn't a lot of specialty fly rod only companies, and so we fit right in with you know, serious shops that were interested in good, good stuff. But with Sage of Fly, I mean, they weren't a fly rod. They were just, they were starting, they were brand new. Oh, this is before they started with spinning rods. Well, you know, in that first time frame, it was fly rods only and a couple of spinning rods. Got it. Okay. And a couple of steelhead drift rods and blanks and stuff. So we did have a mixture, but the emphasis of the trip was fly fishing and that was the main thrust of it. And people knew who you were at this point. Did you carry some clout? <laughs> um, I think some people would have heard of me in the tackle trade and where, you know, they, they would have heard of some of the casting tournament stuff that I had done. I'd also been a fishing guide in Alaska by then by four, four seasons of guiding in, in Bristol Bay up at Kulik Lodge. Kulik Lodge was uh, another fabulous thing. While I was going to college and doing the marketing stuff, in the summertime, I was able to take the two and a half months of summer break to be a fishing guide up in Alaska. And it was back in the 70s when there was very few lodges throughout Bristol Bay. It was really before the main thrust of lodge development occurred. Mm-hmm. And I was at Kulik Lodge, which was the flyout lodge. So I got to see that before so many lodges ever got started. We would fly to a, a river and essentially we would have that river entirely exclusively for us the whole day. If another airplane from another lodge happened to be in that area, which is only every other third day that you would even see another airplane, if they saw an airplane on that river, they would just fly off to a different river. That's crazy. So today, if you go to a river, you might see six airplanes parked side by side in any different short section of that river. Right. So we have so much, you know, so I saw it when... Animals were just everywhere, and just the bird life and the fish life was just so marvelous to see the start of the spring, the snow melt, the leaves come out, the berries start to thing, the bears and just starting to show up, the first run of the sockeye, the first run of the silvers and the kings and, and the pinks, and then have the rainbows and the grayling and the lake trout and the pike. So all that throughout the whole season, towards the end, the color changes and the first of the snow, and I was gone because that was cold. Yeah, exactly. So I had the best of it. But I you've saw. you've seen that that guide life. A lot of people who have seen what you've seen, they can never go back to an office job. How were you? What were you thinking when you decided? You know what? I'm going to go back to fluorescent lighting in a nine to five. 
Was it hard? So I didn't think that my life would be nine to five under the fluorescent lights exclusively. I thought that there was an opportunity to be sort of a partial, you know, whether it would be classes or guided fishing trips or tackle develop something that I would always be involved and I, I I mean I love being out there a lot but I didn't feel the necessity of being there a hundred percent in the bush so to speak all the time mm-hmm. in fact I wanted to have diversification because if you're in Alaska that's what you do and that's all you have but I also wanted to do tarpon fishing I also want to do bone fishing I wanted to do blue water tuna fishing and I wanted to try different things too so if I knew I was locked in on a lodge only, it would be tough. So I know that if I was involved with a tackle manufacturing where you have different products, the opportunity could be there to mm-hmm. try different things. And lo and behold, that's how it worked out. Yeah, you were right. So so what happens from there? So, you know, working at Sage for a number of years, I, I was doing some of the repping and some of the tackle development, but... Um, the company was small. There was no real opportunity in terms of you know significant involvement financially or trying to get a percentage. It was not open, and so I just felt like if I have to make a mark, I got to either do it on my own, start all over, or work for another company that was more receptive, some sort of a financial position that would help me in the future. But I'm gonna I'm gonna interrupt you before you continue. I hope that's okay. Before you make a mark, I mean, what was driving you? Was it a, was it a financial thing, or were you? I mean, I wouldn't have pegged you as a competitive guy, but obviously you enjoyed the competition. Was it a, a status thing? I mean, what was it that was driving you at this stage? Oh, well, on the competition casting side. In 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 your career, like what what was driving you? You obviously weren't looking to be rich. Nobody. No, does nobody does, and it wasn't to be rich. And I and I I think I know what you mean. So, I mean, I wanted to have the options of saying, I would like to have a house someday. I would like to be able to replace my car someday. I would like to be able to afford health care and so forth. In the fishing industry, there is no health care provided. You don't get paid very well. And there's very little opportunity for, for invest or ownership or equity or something that will become appreciating in the future. Mm-hmm. So you got to do it on your own. And yeah. it's and, and if you see that those are blocked, I was making you know less than $20,000 a year after I was there for many years. Uh no chance for a company car, no chance to buy a house. It was a financial dead end for me. Yeah. And the only other opportunity was to become like a, a, a full-time salesman only in a territory and be driving full-time. And as much as a salesman's job is, is okay for me and I work well with persons and shops and so forth, I didn't want to be a, a full-time on-the-road salesman. That was just, I had enough of that and I felt like I'd rather have a position in a company with product development or promotionally related and where it changes a little bit and it's not 100%, you know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So at least I knew I didn't want to do that on the road travel. Yeah. Did you ever want to have a family or anything like that? I thought about it for a while and I wanted to have that option open. And by the time time went along, I figured, you know, the family side would be okay, but it's not my motivation to say that's what I have to do. Mm-hmm. The financial side was to say, I want to have security in the future. Yeah. So I thought at that point in time, I, I didn't see it happening, and I made a change. And uh, the change was to work for G. Loomis Company, yeah. where there was an opportunity for a rod designing position. Which is where we're sitting now. 
Exactly. So obviously, this relationship worked. <laughs> Please do tell. So along the way, I met up with Gary Loomis, and he was this very outgoing, enthusiastic ball of energy, and I'll make you any kind of rod. I can measure your strength. I can go to the computers. We can figure this out. So he had other people that were managing the computers, but um, he was just all about, let's try it. Let's experiment. Let's see what's the newest thing we can come up with. And I just felt, wow, here's a home. And I had the opportunity to say, we need somebody to design the rods and the blanks. Mm -hmm. So with my tournament casting skill, my fishing background, I had already done some saltwater, tarpon fishing, bone fishing, permit fishing, and uh, all the schools. And so this was just a really nice match. And there was a, a noticeable opportunity for growth and ownership or something. So I went for it. And it has been a success for me in that I've been here 30 years plus. I've designed all the rods in the last 30 years for G. Loomis. A lot of input from other people saying, well, let's change the action. It needs to be doing this or stronger that. So with the great machinery and options to change the factory or change materials or try new things, we've been at a leading edge in rod making in this country and if not the world. So I was uh, very happy to be part of this. Yeah. I mean, when I think of Loomis, I think of you. I, I can't help it. It's just automatic. What's going to happen when you're gone? Well, uh, the company has a ownership under the umbrella of Shimano International and Shimano America. And so Shimano has lots of engineers. I'm sure if I just got hit by the bolt of lightning or hit by the proverbial bus, there was an engineer that could come over and start picking it up. Plus, we've had talented people in G. Loomis learning the design side of it and certainly I use them as much as they use me right now yeah. so uh, it's a it's a team effort around here and it's not relying 100% on me that's for sure. Was it a big shock to the system when Shimano took over? Um, we had interviewed a couple of times it was not like Gary surprised us by this. He had health concerns and he said, I have to sell the company and uh, I'm looking at a few options, but I just want to make sure that the company is well taken care of and everybody who's here. And at the time, the decision to use Shimano or you know um, sell to Shimano was a thoughtful position. So, you know, we were saddened, but it was still an okay decision and we all moved along with it. Was there a particular model of rod that was most revolutionary? Like, what do you think was the biggest groundbreaking rod that you guys have put out to date? Well, when I started in G. Loomis was about 1986, and I came up to interview with Gary, and he said, before we talk, here, try this rod. And I went outside, and I said, wow, this thing is, like, powerful and everything. What is this, a six-weight? He says, no, nah, I think it's more like an eight- or a nine-weight, don't you? He says, no, but it's just as light as a six-weight. He says, yeah, but Steve, I just put a nine-weight line. You're casting with a nine-weight line. I says, I know it's thick and heavy, but it feels like a six. Okay, well, what is it? Well, it's a new new rod. It's called the IMX. So the IMX was what really benchmarked G. Lumis in the industry with something new. It was a higher-performance fiber, a higher-performance resin, a higher-performance design, and taking advantage of the materials and the design together optimized it and made a super light rod. So that was really what started the company and where I got started with G. Loomis. Now Gary had sourced it and did a lot of the groundwork. Um, 
I came on board and quickly adjusted actions and expanded the lineup. So that was my first big footmark with the company and, so to speak, in the industry was expanding and developing IMAX. Then as that line carried on for a number of seasons, we're always looking for the next step. The next step was even a stronger graphite that had a little bit higher modulus combined again with newer resin systems to make the whole combination stronger, we came out with GLX rods. Okay, I remember the GLX. So GLX happened in the 93, 92, 93, 94 time frame, and it has expanded and has grown since. Um, but along that way, we kept on fine-tuning either a little different resin, a little different scrim. We've added more flavors and grades that help us to expand the lineup of, of GLX, and then the last big benchmark change was in 2009 with the NRX, and NRX was nanoresin, and nanoresin was the additive of a silica additive into a toughened epoxy that boosted the raw material strength by about 60%, and it doesn't mean you get to have 60% lighter rods, but it dramatically reduced the weight again, and that was the, the, the launching of a nanoparticle additive into a resin system that was what now has the industry buzzing nowadays. Who was so, it that, who, who figured that out? So each time I'm always researching different fiber companies and resin companies and pre-pregging companies that combine those. And I have my tentacles out there finding out, you got anything new? What's cooking? Mm -hmm. So... I found out that they were working on it, and I said, well, let's try it. And we tried it, and said, Shh, wow, this is great. Can you take exclusivity with any of that stuff so that we, other companies can't get it? So the technology was a technology that 3M Company had perfected to blend this particle into the resin system. And so they licensed that to our company that was supplying us with the graphite and the prepreg resin. So we had a, a, um, a limited time exclusive on it. Okay, got it. That's how that stuff works. So, and it's negotiable, I think. We could have said, okay, we'll pay you a million dollars and we'll have it exclusive. Right. So we just didn't do that because there's going to be other strengthening agents besides the nano silica. There's other ingredients that toughen the resin. And since we've actually had another resin system that matched that performance level mm -hmm. and we're working on some new stuff now. So there's always going to be an evolution going on into right. the future of these raw materials. Can you explain to me what graphite is exactly? I know that's a really silly question, but I, I genuinely don't know. What is a sheet made out of? So the sheet of graphite starts with individual fibers of carbon. And to get to that point, you have a raw material called polyacrylonolite. It's essentially like monofilament fishing line, very thin. And you burn it in an autoclave environment at 2,000 degrees in a vacuum. It just like cooks out all the impurities and leaves behind carbon. Oh. in a filament. Hence it's carbon like, fiber. Right. Carbon fiber. And at first, when you see this fiber, I mean, it's a strand, like uh, like a fishing line strand, very thin, and it is almost like fly tying thread. I mean, it's loose and soft and pliable and everything. You think of it as this rigid. It's only rigid after you put it in glue, in epoxy. Mm -hmm. But, okay, so these threads are co combined into a bundle called the toe. And the toe would be like floss, where you have a bunch of threads together in a floss. So there may be 
um, 12,000 threads to one of those floss strands. Okay, wow. So that's called a toe, and there's different sizes, a 3,000, a 6,000, 12,000, and more, 18, 24, and more threads. But you get uh, maybe 100 of those toes, and you put them through a series of finger combs that spreads them out flat as it is being pulled by a conveyor system that's pulling these threads and being pushed down onto a sheet of resin, and a resin being the epoxy. Mm -hmm. And the epoxy probably was already put down on a sheet of paper, like filming, like imagine a piece of paper and squeegee some glue across it. Okay. And then you introduce those threads of graphite onto the squeegee paper of glue. And that's starting to become what you call the pre-preg. Okay. That's the pre-impregnated graphite. So you get the threads going onto this paper with the glue on it, and then it goes in between giant uh, rolling wheels that are pinching it down together, smashing it down to one another. Oh, okay. So the glue is kind of warm, and these roller wheels are very cold, and it just uh, doesn't stick to the cold rolling wheels. And then it goes through these pinch rollers, and depending on how much resin, depending on how much graphite, depending on the stiffness of the fiber and the grade of the fiber, what's its strength, there's different fibers for what is the stiffness, what we call the modulus of the fiber, different strain rate or the strength of the fiber. And when you compare the strain rate to the modulus, you get uh, you know your, your performance characteristics there. And then how much? Do you want to use a lot of it or just a very minimal amount of it? And so that's the primary graphite of the rod. Okay. Besides the resin, the epoxy, and how much of that you use, then there's other fibers in the cross-hoop direction, sideways, uh, laterally to the graphite, that affects the hoop strength of the blank. And so that's a material that we like to use called scrim. There's various kinds of scrim, different thicknesses of scrim, and sometimes we use it all the way through the rod. In other areas, once we have enough, we don't use any more, we have enough. We use other tabs of graphite that have no scrim on it. So we combine different fibers, different resin, different area weights, uh, different scrims. Then the other aspect of rod design is tapering, and that's the shape of the blank. How thick is it in the bottom, how large in diameter, how skinny in diameter, the tapering of the rods. And that's my other key job is to adjust mandrel tapers. So we spec out the taper. A machine shop that is specialized in doing it can grind these mandrels down to 20 thousandths of an inch, like liter material size at the end. And that's what creates these hollow blanks. Blanks are hollow, and these mandrels taper to a very fine area. And our company's very expertise at rolling around a very, very tiny diameter, so giving us the control and ability to make just delicate actions if need be all the way out to the tip. Do you think that Loomis fly rods are underrated? I think so. <laughs> yeah. I think they are. I think they are too. Yeah, I mean, we've won shootouts. We've got great performing rods. We have over 150 models, uh, everything from blue water to spay rods to delicacy trout fishing applications, striped bass fishing, saltwater, tarpon, bonefish, and we've got a lot of great rods in the field, and, you know, it's recognized. But... Um, because our salesmen are both fly rod salesmen and bass rod salesmen and spinning rod salesmen and surf rod salesmen and blue water off-road salesmen, they're not the perfected 
salesman, I think, that's part of the reputation of a company is who's talking about it and who's working it. So no disrespect to our salesmen, but they're they're a jack of all trades. Mm-hmm. Um, but the rods themselves, I think, are are um, as top flight of fly rod, if not the best fly rods. Coming up, Steve walks me through his casting stroke and gives us all an opportunity to realize the unbelievable depth of his accomplishments in the fly fishing world. Again, just a quick thanks to Blue Sky Furled Leaders. You can say goodbye to rebuilding short leaders, untying wind knots, or changing leaders during a hatch. The furled leader allows the angler to tie on tippet sections as the only leader adjustment that's necessary. With loop-to-loop attachments, great prices, and a company who is small enough to genuinely care, there is no reason not to check them out at www.blueskyfly.com. I, I want to go into your, your competition casting, if that's okay. I haven't done the Loomis tour yet, so I don't know. I don't know what's in there. But you make all of your rods. Is it in this building? Am I in mm-hmm. the building where all the rods are made? Absolutely. So you don't outsource it all overseas. No. Everything is made here in Woodland. Yes. And how many rods do you figure you pump out a day? Over five hundred. Daily. And how many of those are fly rods? Quite a few. Um, it's a third. Almost a third of the rods, so we do quite a few, and uh, it changes depending on the time of the year a little bit, and we try to have enough overall business and business worldwide to keep the factory steady. We call it uh, you know constant rate or, or balance flow through the factory, so we don't have to hire and fire. We don't like that, and we don't we really practice that very much. Sometimes we add a few folks in the, the peak seasons, but on a temporary basis, but it's a real stable factory. Our employees here are on average over 14 years of employment on average. Wow. We're amazing. That and says a lot. Really it is. It's is a, it, was this all put into place for when Gary had the company? This is the building that we made specialized. This building was constructed specifically to build fishing rods. But were the values, I mean, are they, have the values stayed from when the company first started? Have they, have, has it felt like they've stayed throughout the entirety of the company's life? I think we've expanded on the corporate values and the you know how do we try to do business and stuff. We've been more um, focused on you know what those specifics are. You know, Gary is more of this gregarious. Let's go, let's go make fishing rod and you know yah 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 and we're America and rah rah rah. Woo. Well, you know that's enthusiasm. <laughs> was infectious and a lot of us still think about that but you know defining you know being a good corporate citizen and green movements and you know responsibility to the employees and responsibility for training and opportunities and you know those types of things are more defined than they ever used to be do you think you're enthusiastic i can be you know and you know when you're when you are staring at a computer screen over a bunch of, you know, financial numbers, it's not my favorite thing. But, <laughs> no. you know, oh boy, I get to design another rod action today or change something or try something. I am, you know, still enjoying that a lot here 30 years down the road. Do you think you're a serious guy? Mostly, yeah. <laughs> Why are you and Tim so different? I mean, it's one of the things that I hear often. That's the difference in our personalities. I'm willing to focus and practice and repeat until it's perfect. Tim wants to just do new stuff and not be uh, handicapped or 
channeled into one thing. You are a perfectionist, aren't you? I try to be. Now, I'm going to ask you something, and I'm overstepping my boundaries, and it's not as bad as it sounds. You can tell me to piss off if you'd like, but <laughs> I, I have fished with you, and you're lovely to fish with. You are, you appreciate, you're one of the few people I've fished with who actually stops and appreciates your surroundings. But, you know, I was, we were with Ross Purnell, and he wanted to watch the, the MMA fight, right? Because Ross is all about, you know, adrenaline, and he's a pretty strong personality. And you came downstairs and you saw the fight and you were like, no, it's just, I don't like the violence. And you went back upstairs. And I remember, um, I mean, you were, didn't you tell me a story about holding a butterfly? Do you remember that? I associate you with being gentle. You just are like this gentle giant. Where did that come from? You know, as a kid growing up, I had the killer instinct. I thought, man, I got to go fish and hunt and kill. You did? And I had that. You know, I was trying to hit a robin with a bow and arrow in the backyard. I never did. But what really cured me of everything like that, when I was 10 years old, our family had a little, vaca- not a vacation, uh, just a visit to a friend's house in the country. And I f- happened to stumble into a BB gun that was in their garage. And I said, oh boy, a BB gun. I never shot a BB gun. <laughs> I shake the, but I knew what the, you, had, you had to have a BB in there. So where's the, I shake it. I don't hear any BBs. But you open it and there's a spot. I said, oh, that's where they go. And I found this little teeny rock. And I put this little teeny rock in the BB gun. And now I'm the big game hunter. I'm hunting <laughs> yeah. around in the garden. And all of a sudden, zoo, 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 zoo. what's that? It's a hummingbird. A hummingbird. Oh, the hummingbird. Yeah, it wasn't a butterfly. Yes, it was a hummingbird. Yes. And so the hummingbird was dive bombing me, or I thought it was. Yeah. And it landed on the branch, like over there, 20 feet away, something. And I aimed with the BB gun. I pulled the trigger, and I says, I'll never hit it. It's a rock. And the rock hits the, the hummingbird. Oh, no. And it drops down to the ground. And I run over and I pick it up. And I'm so devastated. <laughs> Still, now, uh, it died in my hand. Oh, and I never wanted to kill another thing ever. Oh, I'm sorry, Steve. So has that stayed with you? I mean, you still are this really sensitive man. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I love it. It just makes me love you even more. So let me, let, I'll lighten it up a bit. Let's talk about your competitive casting. I still compete now. I go to the Nationals in Long Beach, California, and it's a great casting club. Uh, it's a beautiful clubhouse with lots of memorabilia about casting and fishing. The ponds are like almost 300 feet long by 130 or 40 feet across. So we spread all our targets out there. And then for our long distance, we use a public park that's not far away. And the long distance entails fly casting and the plug casting, but it's a five-day tournament. And so that's the nationals this year. I compete in the nationals no matter what. I'm every year? Or did you take Every year since I told you when I was a kid, I've yeah. been to it. So since 1970 oh, until God, okay. now, I'm pushing 50 years almost of being there every year. There, I, I want to catch up to one of the other members that has since passed on, but he cast 52 national tournaments, and you, you consider it a week each time. Yeah. So that means 52 weeks means a whole year of your life you're in American Championship competition. So I want to get there. <laughs> okay. Well, I have no doubt that you're driven enough that you will. Oh, yeah. So that's coming along. Also, I still participate uh, at World Championships, but not every year. Uh, I used to do them annually. Uh, for many years, they were annual. And then the World Championships decided to go every other year. And that was, like, ideal. It gives you a chance to practice, catch up, 
It's a lot of cost. It's a lot of investment of time to go to the World Championships. They did host uh, what they call World Games competitions, mm -hmm. which is a multi-sport, all different activities that are hoping to become an Olympic-level sport. And Olymp uh, Olympic Games and World Games have that association that's like a stepping stone for the Olympics. So casting was part of it for a long time in World Games, and it's not currently, but hopefully we'll get back in. And I did compete at World Games in Akita, Japan. And uh, so anyhow, we had different places where World Games have been held and... and in the record books, I have the most gold medals in world games. It's amazing. So. Well, when you're competing, are you using all shooting heads, or do you ever compete with, with standard floating lines? In the World's Fly Casting Championships, which is a newer thing. Yeah, can we talk about that? I'm really yeah, interested in this. Yeah, let's talk about that. In, uh, like, 2009 or so, I want to say... It was uh, decided to have like a world's own fly only championships, mm -hmm. combining f trout accuracy, which is six weight, five five weight line actually, and then trout distance with the five weight long belly line for long distance. They had a sea trout distance, which would be up to a ten foot rod and roughly a nine line, but it was allowed to be a shooting head. And then an overhead fifteen foot event, which is taking a fishable size rod. And I'm going to say it was 40-something uh, grams. So fishing size lines and then a big spay casting off of the platform and a spay casting in the water. Mm -hmm. So we have all these different events. And so that's just been um, uh, started up not so long ago. And there's been a total of three fly casting world championships where that's been happening. And it's been held in the same place in Norway these three times. Mm. So it's been happening every other year. And uh, I went to the first two. I missed the third one. Um, but it's a lot of fun just focusing on the fly casting. Right. And it's all expert fly casters, and it's amazing to watch. When I first heard that you're... Because what's your longest cast ever with, with a shooting head? With a shooting head, with the fly, I went 306 feet. Exactly. And nobody believes me when I, say, when I tell them. I knew it was over 300 feet. And so when I had heard that you could cast that far, I just ass <laughs> I assumed when I was younger that it was with a regular floating line. It wasn't. Oh, yeah, yeah. What is the furthest you can cast with a floating line? A continuous weight forward. A continuous weight forward floating line. So. Or double, whatever you're We had a line required in that first fly casting only world championships. Uh, let me think, how did we do this? 2009, Dublin, Ireland. We used a weight forward long belly. Nine-ish. It was either eight or nine. I think it was long belly eight. But we had a world championships in Ireland, and they tried to make it a money tournament, actually. And I'm going to expand on that, too. Yeah. Because there's really only been a very few times where money is actually part of the prizes. It's always just medals. Mm -hmm. But um, in the Irish events, we had the sea trout event, and everybody was given the lines, brand new in the package, open the package. It was Everybody had the same weight forward eight floating line. I said, boy, this is my event. And I knew what kind of a line it was. I'd been practicing, but we got handed over. Here's the line that you get to use. All 70-some-odd people got new lines. And um, I qualified for the finals. And in the finals, we had tremendous wind. And I have an advantage in the wind because I can punch a tight loop in the back cast as well or better than anybody. 
extending into that wind and hit it, and I made a just this perfect V-shaped loop, and it just launched, and the wind blew, and it just straight right out. <laughs> yeah, perfect, yeah. All the mayflies aligned perfectly, and it was 165 feet. Oh wow! So with a weight forward eight floating line. 165 feet is pretty far. That is very it's far. It's like a 120-foot line and 30 or 40 feet of backing past into the into the lake. So that was the longest that I've measured, 165 feet with a weight forward 8. We have the five-weight event, and I've cast in tournaments 125 feet indoors. So no wind at all with a five-weight, 125 feet indoors, outdoors, a light breeze, I went 132 on a tape measure outside. And so with full weight forward lines, you have that extra resistance of the thicker running line. Mm-hmm. And when you go to thin monofilament line, well, then it's less resistance. You get more speed and more distance. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah. that's, you know, in our tournament sport, a lot of the events that I've always done are geared towards that. Mm-hmm. And even then, we are not... Uh, restricted on the density. We can go to sinking line. Mm-hmm. And with sinking line, you get skinnier diameter. It has less resistance in the air shooting out. So the skinnier the line with more speed gives you more distance. Okay. And so with those 17-foot rod, 1,800 grains, high-density, skinny running line, and uh, in the American tournaments, we're on the flat grass, but in world championships, you're on a platform a half a meter, 20 inches off the ground, mm-hmm. giving you more of an angle to shoot high in the front, lower in the back. So in Toronto, Canada, like in the mid-80s, we had this tremendous wind coming off the lake. And even though I went 306, play, 306 feet, I was fifth place. Somebody went 319. That's the longest oh, fly cast I ever saw. Goodness, that, that is... I've practiced, and in fact, in Toronto, in subsequent years, in American championships, I've practiced, and I've went past 320 in practice, yeah. but in the tournament itself, the conditions weren't the same, and I never cracked it. I held the record for a lot of years at 290 feet, and then recently, the American record is now 292 by another caster. Well, I want to ask you about your casting stroke, and there's very few people I would ask this. Uh, I would ask this to, but I, I, I have to ask you because you're Steve Ray Jeff, and I have. I've looked at you on YouTube, and I've tried pausing everything, you know, every half a second to see where your strokes going, where your hands at, where you're drifting to. Um, but it wasn't until I read one of Mel's books, and he was explaining the difference between the elite casters and the greats. Do you remember that study? Well, I remember being in part of his first video, the Essence of Fly Casting video, mm-hmm. and we went to a, a fella in Southern Cal who is working with the Olympic team and in general doing biomechanics studies. Yeah. And he was the guy that put the digital dot on your wrist, on your elbow, on your shoulder, on your hip, and on yes. your knees. And then with a camera, watched your mechanics. And mm-hmm. so we did that study. And who they, was that? Dr. What? Tony Steller. That did that. So he was saying that the difference between the greats and the elites is all in a matter of just like a mild amount of degrees, really. In their the the thing that drift. Tony Steller identified was the the most efficient is is similar to baseball throwing, where you have a ninety degree from the shoulder and a ninety degree from your upper arm to your elbow going up. And if you have the ninety ninety position, is what Tony called it, you had the better mechanics for throwing. And with casting for long distance, particularly, your mechanics of, of throwing motion 
tie together with casting. So if you have the rotation of the body, the shoulder, the arm, and the arm throwing motion perfected, that would translate to better casting. And the digital shots of my longer casting was very similar to that of a baseball pitcher yeah. throwing the ball. So that was one thing they said, this is logical why he can cast quite well. Okay, so this is a really dorky question, but I was wondering if you could explain to me from the point of pickup what's happening with your stroke. Can you can you do that in slow motion with your with words? Is that possible? Well, um, sure. With a bit of line extended out and your rod tip low and your arm extended forward and your wrist relatively straight. Mm -hmm. So we're all straight and tight. The key is to get the line tight so that the fly begins to move. If there's slack in the line, uh, there will not be any loading of the rod. The rod has to bend and help store energy in your cast and in your stroke. If the line is tight, if there's looseness, forget it. So you begin with a straight line. And then as you start to raise up the rod to get tension on the line and bend the rod, they're calling it loading the rod, mm -hmm. and, and you start to raise your hand upward from, say, the waist high, you're raising your hand upward to, say, your ear level. You're raising in a relatively straight line direction, and then you're accelerating your lifting motion, building power and speed, and approximately near your ear area by the side of your head, you're going to stop. And it's not like adding extra energy then. It is not trying to input like a kick, a snap, a flip, a kick. What you're doing is you're bending the load, you're bending the rod, loading it up as you lift. And once you reach the top of the stroke by your ear, you stop. Do you squeeze your hand at the top? Yeah, you got to stop to to help impart rigidity to let the energy of the rod release. So you got to lock it. It's just a momentary like pinch, a little extra there to hold it, and then the rod springs the line behind or starts to offload the energy to the back cast. Now this is cast one of say three. So I noticed that your trajectory right now because you started low. You're at about your. I mean, really, you're right by your ear. Right. So you keep your first one quite high. Your trajectory is quite high on number one. That's the lift off. Okay. And that sets the back cast pretty high on the first back cast. And we were, and I'm just using an arbitrary number here, 35 feet of line, not mm -hmm. like a 80 foot cast yeah. or not a 10 foot cast. But you're lifting it off of the water, presumably water or grass if you're practicing on grass. So you're lifting that first cast and your back cast should be quite high. Mm -hmm. And it's not as much power or speed yet as you, you could have if you're double hauling. It's just a comfortable lift stop. The key that I think is not to think about coming up to that vertical spot and then throwing extra power. Mm -hmm. It's a question of loading and bending and then crisply stopping let the rod release the energy and form a tighter loop. Mm -hmm. That's the key of a back cast is to make a narrow loop. I would say 10% of the casters have as tight a loop as they should okay. in the back cast. Most people come up to that vertical and then open up the wrist in the middle. Right at that point, they open the wrist, causing the rod tip to curve or arc and widen out the back cast loop. Again, if you raise up and just firmly stop, let the rod release and form the tight loop, 
then open the wrist and drift back mm-hmm. as needed for a longer stroke. Okay. Now, when you're doing a competition cast, how many how many false casts are you doing? Two or three? For long distance, if I already have 60 feet of line in front and I'm just going to lift off and false cast, probably up to five, at most six false casts. Holy, you don't fall apart. Well, it's you, but most That's people... That's why I say most people cannot false cast more than about five or six false cast before your arm loses its um, uh, snap, its um, fast twitch muscles. Mm -hmm. The fast twitch muscles are most effective like bang, you know, like one or two times. Mm -hmm. If you kind of fast twitch muscle it over five or six repetitions, you're going to lose some of that speed. Rest, set it down, shake out your arm, something depending on how fit you are, how strong are you and so forth. It may take a few seconds, it may take 20 seconds better off resting 20 seconds and come back to it knowing what your trajectory the wind the, the drift all the stroke so then you try to reduce your false casts down to three or four and shoot okay that's the ultimate but on the on the pickup yeah you're not shooting a line on your back cast if you want to you could but when you're competing do you i mean i know you're starting out with more line in front obviously so if we're talking about a weight forward five weight mm-hmm. if we're picking that then you would probably lift off where the belly and the running line meet. And that would be next to the tip of the rod. So that's your first lift off. Then you want to get out some extra line, some of the thinner line. So when you double haul, you're not drawing the belly inside the rod tip. Mm -hmm. So we're extending. And then depending on conditions, the more you can handle and maintain as a comfortable false cast, you can let out 15, 20, or 25 feet of the thin line, depending on, on the conditions. And it makes a difference if you're at high elevation, or if it's high humidity or low humidity, if there's a crosswind or a tailwind or a headwind, how much line you can let out. So we adjust for all those variables with how much you can let out. As much as you can handle, the more the better, till the point you start getting shaky and the line begins to waver, and then you're better off shortening the line. So you find that point, and that's how much you do shoot out. So you lift off the back ass, shoot out a little bit, till you know you're right on that raggedy edge of losing control. That's the limit. And from there, third or the fourth false cast, you're ready to shoot. And that would be an example. Now, your stroke's quite high. Can you sidearm a long-distance cast? If you sidearm, you're probably not going to be able to aerialize as long a length of line. But okay. if you have a bad side wind and it's like if you try to aerialize a long line and it would be hitting you or the rod, there could be the case where you sidearm it with a little bit less line, keeping it low with a little bit less line in the last cast, change trajectory and, and raise up and shoot out higher. So um, that is an example. But other times you can let the line be blown to your opposite side of your body. I'm a right-handed caster, and if I had a bad crosswind, I could let the back cast start to come right behind me. And as I come forward, the forward cast should be more over the top of my head instead of off the right shoulder like Mm -hmm. I would normally cast. So there's things you can compensate for in long-distance casting to, to make the best of it. Let's be honest, okay? In casting, when we talk about the best casters in the world, it's typically people say Lefty, Joan, Ray Jeff. I just I hear it all the time. The three, I mean, of course, there's great casters, and there's a lot of wonderful people um, who belong in that category. But you three are kind of the three most talked about um, casters, really, in, in, my, in my group anyway. 
So Lefty's got the sidearm. Joan has the sponge grip, you know, the, or the, the, the screen door grip and, and the kind of straight up and down. What's the Ray Jeff style? I, for accuracy, use a thumb on top. Okay. And just keeping a shorter casting stroke. I relate my accuracy cast to throwing darts at the dartboard. It's lining up your dominant eye with your target direction, your hand closely in front of that, lining the two together, the target in your eye, your hand in the middle. And it's possible to tilt the rod tip off to the side, but yet your hand is in alignment with your eye into the target. So it's a thumb on top, and for short strokes, that's fine. As soon as you start to have to lengthen the casting distance and use a longer stroke, eventually the grip in my hand will rotate slightly mm-hmm. to a V-grip. Mm-hmm. And so that finally, if I have to make a tremendous long stroke and a long finish uh, delivery stretch, uh, a delivery stroke with an extended arm, the thumb is no longer on top. It would be hard. It strains your wrist too much to keep your thumb on top. If you fully extend your elbow... And a baseball thrower doesn't have the thumb up at the end of the throw. The thumb is on the side because it's a natural follow-through of the wrist. So for long-distance casting, the thumb in a V-grip will be helpful. And I'm pretty sure Lefty and Joan do the same. Yeah. You know, they start off with maybe a thumb grip on a short cast, 20 feet. But as soon as you start to lengthen it, the grip changes and the stroke changes. So I think we... The, the fundamentals of casting are the fundamentals of casting. And you have little nuances of little changes in grips and, and styles. And the sidearm cast is beneficial in side wind and tropical conditions, always very windy or usually very windy. And it's a safer cast. And off to the side, keeping low to the water, cuts underneath of the wind, and it presents less of a spooky cast to the, to the flatfish if you're, you know, bonefish, redfish, whatever, tarpon. So... That angle cast makes total good sense in that application. Mm-hmm. And you don't have anything to hit behind you. Really, right. it's water. So the back cast being low doesn't hurt. On a trout stream, New England area, in Jones' neighborhood, and she does everything as well. But, I mean, trout casting is awful and often keep the fly from hitting bushes, keep it out of the trees and stuff, grasses. So you want a higher back cast. So the lifting and lowering stroke, short cast and help the leader to turn over on a downward slope that is accurate. It's better than throwing a high upcast and letting it flop around. So Mm -hmm. the up, lift, backcast, and lower, drop down, forward stroke is great for shorter intermediate distance casts. And so depending on your distance, you change. Mm -hmm. Lift and lower for accuracy, more parallel to the water strokes, And for long distance, you can lower your hand down and back and elevate the hand slightly on the forward stroke for elevated forward casts for long distance. Do you make bad casts ever? Of course. Because I think about this often. Somehow, I think it was Jerry Darkus who told me you were fishing with Bruce Shard. I believe Bruce told Jerry that in all of his career, there's only ever been one person in his boat who he's fished with who is flawless. And that was you. <laughs> and, you know, it actually, I was cursing you because e- like, even this morning, I went fishing on the Clackamas. And I've been on, in Australia for the last six months, so I've been on single-hander. Then I picked up my bamboo double, my double-hander. And, oh, my God, how just tragic. <laughs> tragic. I hope nobody saw me out there. And, uh, and I just, I kept telling myself, well, it happens to the best of us. And then every time that I try to say that to make myself feel better, I think about you and I go, 
bastard. It doesn't happen to Ray Jeff. But you tell me, make me feel better. Do you make I bad casts? I make a bad cast every now and again, but the thing that I have going for me is I know what to do to fix it. Yeah. So if I get into a bad rut and I say, okay, what are you doing? Is the tip tracking straight? Are you opening the wrist? Is the back cast in alignment with the front cast? Is the rotation of the wrist closing when it should or open when it should? There's a few checklists of items that you can think of, at least analyze why it's not working and what can you do to fix it. Mm -hmm. So that's the benefit of having practiced or having even beyond practice, having taught other people and teaching other people makes them far more skillful caster of yourself and your ability to, to correct mistakes. Well, excellent. I'm about to wrap this up. Is there anything on here that I'm missing? Well, the only thing I forgot to jump in when we were touching on Jimmy Green uh, as a great tournament caster, the Fenwick rod designer, and my original teacher of how to design rods. So Jim Green was the Fenwick rod designer, and he grew up from the 40s and from transition of bamboo into fiberglass, and he was one of the first guys making rods from fiberglass, and he invented the, the what he called the ferrolite ferrule, which is the tip slips over the butt. Prior to that time, it was metal ferrules for bamboo, and even the first round of, of fiberglass, there was the internal spigot ferrule too, but Jimmy figured out a way to design the tip to slip over a butt section. That was make, him who did that? Yeah. And he had a patent on it, and he got royalties on it for many, many years from Fenwick, and then Fenwick bought him out. But um, Jimmy showed me how to do rod design blank-wise in the Fenwick factory when fiberglass was still the only material. So we would make tournament casting rods. He knew I was getting better, and I was probably 11, 12, 13, 14 years old still. And it was 1971, 72 Steve, you got to try out this new material we're playing with. Oh, yeah? What is it? It's called graphite. Really? And I got another material. Oh, yeah? What's that? That's boron. So in 1971-72, I was already casting boron and graphite blanks that Jim had designed and they fact in, in their factory on Bainbridge Island, which was where Fenwick was then. Uh, I was already shown rods and how to design blanks by Jim and uh, try them out. And I was actually testing the boron and the graphite rods. And which one do you like better? And he says, well, I like them both better than fiberglass. They are very light. They cast the lines with more power and speed. But the graphite's a little lighter than this boron. If I had to pick, I would pick the graphite. And I'm sure they had a lot of other people suggesting what they thought. But Fenwick came out first with graphite rods. And that would have been 1973, and I was already having a tournament casting rod in that year of 73, and I had the very first ones to go fishing with in 72, and I showed some of my friends, Mel Krieger, Andy Puyans, David Inks, a few guys from California area. Then I went to the Federation of Fly Fishing Conclave, and it was held in Sun Valley, Idaho, and I had the very first one. Jimmy, is it okay if I show this graph. Yeah, please do. Please do. So then we had Ernie Schwiebert, uh, Jack Hemingway. He was then the uh, Idaho Fishing Game Commissioner, the son of, of Ernest Hemingway. And um, there was a whole slew of the Federation people, 1972 in Sun Valley. So we were out in the pond in front of the Elkhorn Lodge casting 
graphite rods, and that was the very first time any group of people really got to see them. And I brought it to the party. So I was, oh, I love it. It was good. Do you think you were more involved in the industry back then than you are now? I mean, you are the industry in a lot of ways, but it feels like you're one of the one of the more private, unknown uh, guys these days. Everybody knows you, but you're like this figure who exists, but nobody knows who he is. <laughs> <laughs> so I used to do more conclaves and do more schools and more. Uh, I think uh, you know the. Just different things in the industry, and so I have done that so long, and I am fully engaged here at the factory. That anytime I get a little more time to go do stuff, I kind of want to do it on my own. Yeah, and I still have some friends that I fish with, of course, and places and such, and and do a fair amount of fishing every year. So I'm still delighted to go fishing and look forward to my next trip. So, what would you like us in my generation to remember you as? Is that important to you that we remember you? Huh. I hadn't I mean, even thought about that. We're never going to forget you, but is it important to you? Uh, I think maybe Steve has the reputation as, a, as one of the best, if not the best, tournament caster because I've won 14 world championships. Uh, John Tarantino had won six, so kind of eclipsed him by a few extra. And uh, I shared casting skills to a lot of other people and... I was lucky enough to see some of the great fishing that ever existed in North America. So the Alaska experience particularly, and not only that, but back in the 70s, I was also helping with fly fishing schools in in Idaho and in Montana when some of the very first Rocky Mountain schools that were dedicated schools. So we did have the likes of, you know, Ernie Schwiebert, uh, Mike Lawson, the famous other fishing, uh, Will Godfrey and... Jim Danskin and the Lilies from West Yellowstone. We had all these famous fishermen from the Rockies that were in. Renee and Bonnie Harrop were in there on the fly tying side and teaching fishing. And I got to meet some of the guides. And at the time, again, fishing is so wonderful, but you meet the personalities that can share you that that how to catch them and that instinct and that excitement and the feel. So I think I was lucky enough to see some of it at its best and I'm not complaining that there's lots of people doing it now, and I think there are a lot of people in places, sometimes too many, And but everybody wants to have a little piece of that. And so I was lucky enough to be at the start of a lot of this, and I feel you know maybe that was my other good fortune in my life. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Please be sure to take a moment to leave a review about Anchored on iTunes and visit www.flygal.ca to check out our new line of men's t-shirts. Thanks for listening.